0: Diakonasa Cops Calling is sponsored by Luciano's Woodworking. Luciano's Woodworking is owned and operated by Carlos Luciano Jr. And he works with each of his customers to create hand-carved wooden plaques, signs, wall hangings, and more. Currently, he is working on a wall hanging for Diakonasa Cops Calling. And I am super excited to see it once it's completed. He's worked with me to meet the style, the colors, the print, and the frame I want for this project. You can see his talented work. Just check out Luciano's Woodworking on Facebook and Instagram. Whether you want a welcome sign for your home, a plaque to display challenge coins, a hand-carved piece of your favorite sports team, a personalized stovetop cover, retirement plaques for those in the military or in law enforcement, wall art for rooms in your house, or any other similar project, he can do it. Carlos is a full-time police officer, a husband, and a father, but he enjoys kicking up the dust with this side hobby. He's a busy guy, but you will not be disappointed as you patiently wait for him to complete your project. So check out Luciano's Woodworking right now on Facebook and Instagram. See his work, share his work, share him on social media, and then let him know what project you'd like him to start for you. This
1: podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate
2: for little ears like mine.
3: He was a suicide by police, but he wanted to take a bunch of us with him. And that was real, (laughs) that was a little, that was a little, when uh, it started sinking in later that night, I thought, man, that was, that was something. And after he opened fire on us the second time, he ran back in, and he asked the grandmom, is it better to live or die? And she was like a sweet lady. She tried to talk him into surrendering.
0: Welcome to Deaconess Cops Calling. I'm your host, Anthony Weaver. And coming up is a great conversation uh, with retired chief Keith Sadler. It's part uh, it's part one of a uh, two-part conversation I have with him about his career and thoughts he has on the current state of affairs in law enforcement. But first, I wanted to make sure you know that you can become a Deaconess Cops Calling patron. All you have to do is go to Diakonos, ACC. Dot podbean.com and click on the become a patron button in the top right corner. I'll also include that link in the uh, comments for this episode. Uh, and for only $3 a month, you can partner with me to kick up the dust after the mission of this podcast. Here's a couple questions for you Do you support the mission of Diokonosic Cops Calling? Do you want to have a chance at winning a prize drawing in July? Do you want access to future content exclusively for uh, patrons only? Do you want to take part in polls related to the podcast? If you answered yes to any of these questions, please go to diakonosacc.podbean.com, click on the Become a Patron button, and for only $3 a month, you can become a patron. Our first prize drawing is in July, and the winner of that drawing will get a set of handmade leather drink koozies made by none other than famous past guest Detective Gary Lowe. So, support Cops Calling. I would appreciate it. All right, here's part one of my conversation with retired chief, Keith Sadler. My guest is a highly decorated retired chief who served in law enforcement for 38 years before retiring in 2019. His service included 27 years with the Philadelphia Police Department, that being from 1981 to 2008. He retired from the Philadelphia Police Department as chief inspector, where he oversaw 800 detectives before taking the position of chief uh, of the Lancaster City Bureau of Police from 2008 to 2017. After retiring from Lancaster City Bureau Police, he went on to serve two years as the Regional Director of the Bureau of Narcotics at the Pennsylvania State Attorney General's Office. Currently, he's the Director of Security at Penn Medicine, Lancaster General Health. Uh, he's had quite the career, and I'm really honored that he has agreed to come on to the podcast. Uh, Chief Keith Sadler, welcome to the podcast. Thank
3: you. Glad to be here.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Um, so we were, we were talking before we came on about, I found this podcast, because I was asking you if you had ever been on a podcast, and you said you had been on one, and I actually found the one you were <laughs> on uh, just by happenstance. Uh, it was called My Generation, yeah. and it was a whole, <laughs> like it was probably about 30, 40 minutes about jazz, and you're a yes. very big jazz fan. That's right. I know nothing about <laughs> jazz. If there was one thing you could tell me about jazz, what would it be?
3: Well, I I guess the reason why I've been a jazz buff for now since I was probably 14 or 15, um, some jazz has vocals in it, but a lot of it doesn't. And what I like about it, somebody writes a piece of music and plays it, and you as the listener, that piece of music can mean whatever you want it to mean. Uh, It'll probably be totally different than what the writer of the piece was. But it just takes you to so many different things, and you know it's a type of music that a lot of people don't know about, but when they actually get into it, they realize, wow, this is really and it crosses into a lot of different genres I mean there's like you know the soft jazz you hear when you're in a barber shop or there's like fusion jazz, which is more like a cross between rock and jazz, and then there's singers, there's crooners, and there's big bands, so it's a little something for everybody. It has a rich history, and it's, it's a true American art form. So I've, I've been hooked on it forever. But I listen to a lot of other music, too. I right. listen to my classic rock and my R&B, and that'll never stop. Yeah.
0: I think for me, I just need to give jazz more of a chance. Because Absolutely. Because there's times where I've listened to it, and maybe it's just the style I'm listening to. It It, like it starts making me nervous because there's so much going on in it.
3: Yeah, it it depends. There's some jazz that they call avant-garde, which is very confusing, and even a lot of jazz enthusiasts don't listen to that. Okay, But, you know, uh, the biggest selling jazz album in the history of jazz is still Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. And I always tell people that are trying to think that they might want to try it, to get that album, that's the biggest selling jazz album. Came out the year I was born, 1959. Okay. So that's a special meaning. So yeah, that's, that's a good start.
0: Well, I it's good that you said that and that makes me feel better because after I listened to this, uh, this episode of My Generation that you were on, I was like, you know what? And I heard you talking about Miles Davis on that. Yeah. And uh, so I was at the store the other day, and I was working, and I, so I was like, oh, "I'm just going to throw in some Miles Davis. I don't nice. know anything about nice. this guy." And I was like, "Okay, I can, I, yeah. Some of it, some of the stuff was pretty yeah, good. Now he was I don't a know, yeah, I don't know if if that specific, if any of the songs I heard were from that specific album you said. Yeah, but, whatever
3: way he went, the other musicians followed. He played traditional jazz, then electronic, then he was playing soft jazz. So
0: yeah, now <laughs> real it, pioneer. In that, uh, in that um, podcast, you also talked about how you would make your own CDs, and you had a collection of over, I think, 300 CDs that you mixed yourself yeah, with different right. music. Do you still do that, or have you no, kind of given up on it No, I don't do it
3: anymore since now all the, uh, with Tidal, Amazon Music, uh, Prime, uh, Spotify, you can make playlists that last for a lifetime, right? So it's you know I I don't when you mix a CD you only have you know eighty minutes of music. When you make a playlist up on your uh, you know your your phone, <laughs> you can have a playlist that can run forever almost. Right, so. it's pretty in, pretty incredible. Yeah, I still it is.
0: I still have CDs uh, over here on the other side of the uh, the basement. Um, I have like a whole. Thing of yeah, CDs so and I, I, I haven't even yeah. There's a no need to, to
3: play them. I have a few thousand and it's just well, they're kind of collecting dust.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. So a long a long storied career. Um. And and uh, when you came to LCPD when you came to Lancaster City Police Department, uh, one of the things that was funny or or kind of left me know, um, as a young officer that we were probably getting a a good chief was. There were Philadelphia officers who were having conversations with Lancaster City officers <laughs> and basically saying, hey, uh, you know, Chief Sadler is a really good guy. Uh, you guys better treat him well or we're going we're gonna to come there and give you, a pro- uh, give you problems. So what do you, what do you think it was about how you operated as, as a police officer and then as a leader in the department that made guys that loyal to you?
3: Well, I think I was very fortunate when I was new to the job in Philadelphia. A lot of the people that trained me, a lot of them were Vietnam veterans. So they had seen some really bad stuff and they'd been through it. So being a police officer in Philadelphia was, you know, not as big of a challenge as when they were over on the other side of the world as 18 and 19-year-olds. So there was a, you know, like a code of honor uh, a lot of pride in the job. So, those are the people that taught me, and they taught me a lot about leadership. And I, my style was always, I always called it kind of like a round table. uh You let people be creative, you let people be part of the whole process. And then there's a time when, you know, things are going bad and you're in an emergency situation. That's when, you know, I can be the type A personality because you have to take charge of things but you treat people with respect. Uh, I'd never, ever berated somebody in front of other people. And if we had to have a discussion for something that they did wrong, it, it's another learning experience. And you talk to people sternly when they make a mistake, but you have to let them know that they, can, they have to get past that and do better. So, uh, you know, some of the people that were my sergeants and lieutenants had that same mentality. So I feel very fortunate that that was able to carry over. And I found that to be very successful. I mean, you know, the way I was raised, treat people the way that you would want them to treat you. It's a pretty simple rule to live by.
0: Right. Now, do you think, you mentioned that a lot of the people, a lot of the guys that trained you were Vietnam vets and, and uh, kind of had that, uh, that experience, under high stress and just some leadership capabilities that were born out of that. Do you feel uh, like that's something that's lacking a little bit in law enforcement right now? Um, Just that kind of experience coming out of something like that?
3: Yeah, I mean, times change You know, in that era when I was growing up, there still was a draft. So it was pretty much understood when you got out of high school, you were probably gonna get drafted unless you went to college. And even when you finished college, you had an expectation that you would get drafted. I mean, my my uh, one of my uncles uh, graduated to Philadelphia Pharmacy College, and he was drafted right after he graduated. And he said it was the best two years he ever spent. Back then, when you got drafted, you only had to do two years. And a lot of them would stay for longer. Um, so... I think nowadays, I mean, the draft ended when I was still in high school. Right. I think it ended in 70, some of the mid-70s. And now, I mean, people in the military do it by choice. But as we all know, a lot of young people would benefit, people that don't have any direction. Uh, years ago, judges would tell you jail or the military And so a lot of people, my old neighborhood in West Philly, there were some guys that were in trouble as young men, and they were given that choice, and they chose to go to the military, and I remember one guy that was in a gang in my old neighborhood ended up being a Philadelphia police officer, my older sister said, hey, you know, uh," his nickname was Fat Boy, but his real real name um, was Harry. And he said, remember remember Fat Boy? Yeah, he goes, you know he's on the police department like you. He's older. He came on four years before I did. And I remember talking to him years later, and he said, you know, he remembers when he was running around like an idiot, and uh, he had a choice. Some of the guys he used to hang with, some of them were dead. Some of them went to jail. And a couple of them went in the military or the police department or fire department, and they, they made out well. I'm friends with him and his wife on Facebook. I see them all the time. Yeah, that's so really. I think that's the biggest difference.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually just uh, interviewed um, a guest several episodes ago who, um, what he would he was a criminal and he turned his life around, and he and I'm actually friends with him now and uh, not a police officer but right. but just lived that lifestyle and he would talked about that in that episode that he got in trouble uh when he was like 17 18 I think and the judge gave him that ch- yeah. gave him that choice hey listen you know and so that's what he did he joined the marines now yeah. his life kind of went really off the tracks then for a while but um but yeah it definitely just dist- you know, instilled some, uh, yeah, absolutely. you know, some character in him and, and, uh, gave him some life experience that he wouldn't have had had he just, you know, been like, no, I'm going to take my chances sure. and maybe go to prison.
3: You have to remember too, uh, the world we live in in the 21st century, a lot of people skills have diminished. You know, you have social media, video games, kids not wanting to, you know, uh, on a day like today, uh, we couldn't sit in the house. Mother would say, Go outside. <laughs> yeah. And we wanted to. The only time we stayed in the house is if it rained.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and that's like something we're trying to instill in our kids now. I mean, on days like today, yeah. like that you no, know, the TV's not on. You're outside yeah. playing. Fresh air. Yep. And uh yeah, it's it is it is kind of lost thing. And I just think that generation, like when you came on the job and like you said, being with Vietnam vets and stuff. Um, and And granted, like when I came on the job you know there's there were several guys that were in Persian Gulf, and then you know later on in my career guys that had been um, overseas after nine eleven and everything like that um, but I just I guess generally speaking, I just feel like police like people in police work right now are just a lot more of Wusses than they were back <laughs> even when I got hired, and well, definitely when you got hired.
3: I, I, some of that I always tell younger officers, and they're kind of amazed at this. When I was a young officer, you didn't get a handheld set, the radio in the car was the only radio you had. The only time you got a handset is if you were walking a footbeat or the radio in the police car was broken. So, what that meant is you really had to learn how to talk and communicate with people because when you left the police car, you were on your own. So, uh, and not everybody is six foot five, 300 pounds. So, you know, tough guy is great. But if you're in the middle, I mean, I can remember being in the projects in North Philly with my partner, being on like the 11th floor with no radio and two families uh, going to war at each other. And at that point, you know, you're thinking, well, uh, nobody knows that we're having a problem up here, so we got to handle it. I mean, we were firm, and at one point, you know, we had to grip, grip a couple guys up, and they realized, well, wait a minute, these two guys are by themselves, but, you know, they're not going to be overran, And it brought their levels down a little bit. And then we actually kind of like negotiated a peace deal between the two factions. And we were just glad to get on out of there when that was over. But, you know, you really, if you didn't have people skills in my generation, you were going to have a hard time being on the street. And, you know, people see TV, they see, you know, the two man cars. Um, The only uh, the time you had a partner in patrol when I was a Philly cop is if you were working the patrol wagon if you were a sector car you were always by yourself now special units like highway patrol and stakeout whatever they were two 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 person cars but uh if you were a regular sector officer you were by yourself so you really had to know how to talk to people and when it came time, if somebody was attacking you, you had to know how to defend yourself.
0: Right. That's pretty wild. So, how long was it then that you didn't have a radio with you that you carried on your belt then?
3: We didn't. The radios, uh, officers signing radios out, didn't start till probably the late 80s, early 90s, I would say. Uh, supervisors always had a handset. Like when I made Sergeant, I had a radio in the car and I had a handset. But probably by by the early nineties, pretty much everybody carried a handset. And that's the okay. same way now. As it should be. I mean, the world's changed, you know. I, I can remember as a young cop getting out and, you know, a large disturbance and being the only cop for another three or four minutes. And yeah, they could have overran you, but there was kind of even among bad people, like, well, all right, there's a cop here now. Let's, you know, let's knock it off or let's run and get out of here. Uh, I wouldn't do that nowadays. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, if you get out of a car by yourself in a large disturbance, they're definitely going to come after you. I mean, that's just the way it's, it's become. There's not a lot of respect yeah. for law enforcement. But
0: I think that kind of goes back to a little bit of what I said earlier, where I think uh, we've kind of, the, our culture right now has kind of neutered the police to a certain degree. And, and police officers now can't interact with the criminal element the same way they could yeah. back when you, when you got hired. Um, because like you said, there was like a, a, a level of respect there, even yeah. among the criminal element that, hey, you know, yeah, this cop's by himself, but he's, he's probably going to lay a licking on me <laughs> if, I, if I try to be an idiot. Um, whereas now, yeah, people yeah. just don't care. No, they're they 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 they'll do whatever they want to do they'll videotape it yeah exactly They'll file complaints and and yeah. if, you know it's just it's just well a,
3: it's sad because it really is preventing officers from doing their job and you know you're there to protect the community and you know the criminal element knows that all they have to do is start yelling and screaming and get the phones out and engage the crowd because what usually happens uh people that come up to a scene are only getting the part where the officer's trying to put handcuffs on somebody. And all it takes is one person to say, oh, they're beating him or they're, he didn't do anything. And then you have that mob mentality. Everybody chimes in. And, you know, the way I was raised, my mother was like, if you're somewhere and there's a crowd forming or you see the police doing something, go the other way. Don't run up there to see what's going on. Like, And I did. I had that growing up when it's even at school, if there was a a crowd and a fight, I used to get out of Dodge. And, you know, her reason for that was listen, in our neighborhood, yeah, you don't know who's going to pull a gun or a knife and start shooting, and you're standing there as an onlooker. So, I mean, (laughs) so it was different when I got on the police department. Then I was going towards the trouble, not away from it. So that was a little different. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I, I do think that's super. Interesting and wild, like blows my mind that from you know when you started nineteen eighty one till uh, at least the late eighties, a lot of times you were you just had the radio in the car and, yeah, and that was it. it, and you hoped your cover that you got was decent, and yeah. wow.
3: <laughs> well, a lot of times what you would do if you had a car stop, you would put the radio on the speaker, so that radio blaring over the uh, the intercom like that used to people realize hey he's here by himself but there's a whole bunch of people pretty close by cuz you could hear him like oh i'm responding to that i'm i'm going to back him up so you would purposely put that outside speaker on okay and that kind of like gave you a little bit of like protection until your backup did get there and you know like again it was a different world i can remember summer in 1982 I, there was a uh, I had to take um, a, um, a lady over to the detectives for an interview. She, I think she had gotten burglarized, whatever it was. And the detective said, hey, would you mind waiting and give, it's only going to be a few minutes, give her a ride back. And I'm sure. So I pull up and I'm getting ready to get out the car to let her out. And this car comes flying up the street, screeching around the corners, comes through a screech and stop when they see me. And a whole bunch of kids bail out the car and take off running, and then the kid driving lays rubber and takes off. And I'm like, either the car's stolen or he's high or a combination of both. And I chase after him in the police car, and I think he lost control of the car. I forget, he hit a car, whatever happened, he bailed out the car, and now I'm chasing him. And I'm running up the street, and I'm thinking as I'm running, I mean, I told him where I stopped, But now I'm at least two, three blocks away still chasing this guy. And he runs into a house. It was funny. Uh, I come busting through the door, and his family's sitting there eating dinner. And they're going, hey, what's going on? And I'm uh, out of breath. And I said, um, I chased him in a car, and he ran in here. And the kid's mother jumped on him, and he apparently was a bad kid. Right. And the father said, oh, I'll call you a backup officer. He got on his phone, you know, regular landline, and, and he's yelling to his little door, nervous. I could see it like it was yesterday. And he goes, get that officer a drink of water. And I'm thinking, um, am I like in some kind of like black hole? Like, this is weird. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to lock their kid up. And it was so funny. Just then I could hear the sirens coming because he got on the phone. But unbeknownst to me, as I was chasing this kid, other people in the neighborhood were calling, saying, hey, he's running. That's where they knew where I was even before the dad called. And they came busting through the door, and then, you know, they they handcuffed him and got him out of there. And I thought, man, when I tell that story, I'm going, wow. You know, you're know, you by yourself three blocks away. And then the funny part, when I got back to my car, I figured, you know what? Half my stuff's going to be missing. And when I got back, everything there was another police car standing by my car. But that car was unattended running for at least three or four minutes. Right. And weeks later, I stopped a group of kids that were drinking on the corner. And, you know, treat people with respect. I'm like, fellas, you know, it's time to go. Oh, yeah, all right. And One kid I knew from the neighborhood and start talking to him. And he goes, hey, you know, we were out the night you were chasing. They knew the kid I was chasing. And I said, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, it was some night. And he goes, did you ever wonder why nobody stole your stuff? And I'm like, what is this guy, mind reader? And I said, yeah, actually I was. And he goes, well, you know, uh, everybody saw you bail out and they saw your car running. And he goes, you know, all the toads in the neighborhood know you because it it was my sector. And they were like, hey, hey, you know, Sadler, he's all right. You know, don't take his stuff. And they just hung out until the police pulled up. And the one guy was like guarding my car. And I I tell that story because I'm saying, look, you know, back to treating people even somebody who's you know from a different element you know criminal whatever if you you know talk to them like a human being sometimes it doesn't work but nine times out of ten they'll remember that once you got them you didn't treat them badly right you know um, yeah
0: yeah i i mean i think that's a a excellent point i think i i think there were times in my career where i did that well and times where i did it terribly sure yeah
3: we all did (laughs) but um, well, we all lose it and
0: and I wish I w- I wish you know you look back and you're like man I wish I would have known what I know now back when I was like <laughs> that 22 year old kid full of piss and vinegar coming out of the academy trying to light the world on fire but um yeah, but was yeah was 22 it's a, when I started yeah yeah that's a, that's uh that's that's crazy it just seems like uh A lifetime ago and really 1980s was not that long ago (laughs) um it it doesn't seem like that long long ago so you climbed you climbed rank then uh you know in in philadelphia when you when you uh retired from philadelphia you were is chief inspector the proper uh, title and and what exactly is chief inspector
3: that's like a full bird colonel in the military okay so uh my my, I started at sergeant. I made sergeant uh, when I had uh, a little under five years on. I was twenty six years old. I made lieutenant when I was thirty, captain when I was thirty five, inspector when I was thirty seven. Inspector is like a lieutenant colonel, and then chief inspector uh, when I was forty two. So, uh, when you're a chief inspector, you're in charge of a whole bureau. So, I started out in the patrol bureau when I got promoted, and I had like 4,000 cops under me, and then uh, I was the chief of narcotics bureau, and at that time, we had about 600 narcotics officers in that bureau. Then I was in forensic science bureau for about a little more than a year, and I learned uh, a whole lot about criminalistics and forensics. And then uh, my last assignment was chief of detectives, and that really was what a way to go out. I had eight hundred detectives at different detective divisions, major crimes, homicide, all of that intelligence, organized crime, all came under me. Uh, and that really was the last year, and that that was a fun way to retire, being yeah. chief of detectives, and that. So. Um, Nobody gave me anything. In Philadelphia, all those ranks are civil service that I just mentioned. And for um, sergeant, lieutenant, and captain, there's a written exam and an oral exam. Inspector and chief inspector is all oral exams. So you have to study. And I put a lot of time, you know, I'm like, I'm a big trivia guy, but uh, my trivia is lacking between like the mid-80s to the (laughs) mid-90s because I was always studying. Right. So I couldn't tell you about TV shows, and I you know, draw blanks. I'm like, man, I never even heard of that show. But uh, first, one of the first sergeants I had said, "Hey, kid, you know, guys go home and drink beer and watch TV all night. You're a smart guy. You should go home and when they pronounce it, read the books, study the directives, and you'll go far." And he was right. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. Wow, that's that's an uh, that's pretty incredible. And then as when you said like Chief Inspector. And you know, uh, at one point you said you oversaw all narcotics. Is that citywide then? Oh yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah, how do you? Bureau's. How do you even? <laughs> that is a that's a lot of people. I mean, obviously you have you know rank yeah, underneath I
3: mean, there's you here. A whole here. rank structure, right. but You know, uh, the important part in, in leadership. Like when I was chief of detectives, I had six divisional detective uh, divisions throughout the city, and then homicide and major crimes and some other units. And they each had, some of them had inspectors and captains. Most of them have captains and then lieutenants, sergeants, whatever. So I made a point to meet, you know, with captains and above in my bureau. And that's how you get things done. Yeah, it's impossible for me to stay on top of 800 detectives individually. right? But their commanders, that's who I met with and, you know, we've got things done. And you have to be visible. I mean, there were a lot of times I would show up at crime scenes, not because I'm going to come out there and process it, but for nothing else but just support and, you know, and keep the media off them a lot of times right. too. But it means a lot. And people, when you're in a leadership role, the people under you have to know that you don't have a problem doing the same thing they're doing. Yeah. And any large detail I ever ran, uh if uh we were out there for a large festival or something or any kind of a riot i was always out there in the middle of it and people don't forget that they think well if he's out here getting rocks thrown at him you know then i shouldn't complain right the problem with leadership especially bigger departments when the top guy is hiding in a trailer somewhere and his officers are getting bombarded they never forget that, but uh, yeah. when they see a boss standing out there with his riot helmet on, getting pelleted just like they are, they think, "Well, hey, you know what? He's he's out here with us, so we can respect that." Yeah, and it yeah. goes a long way. So yeah, that
0: whole that whole mantra: be there to lead. There, yeah. you know, just you you kind of oh, have to, true. you know, be uh, be with be with your people. So then, you, you were at one point then uh, in the running, or or even i from what i understand a leading candidate for the philadelphia police commissioner position um towards the end of your career uh what what happened with that it
3: was pretty interesting because uh the primary uh, for the mayor's race in philadelphia was in the spring of 2007 and the uh Democratic Party is like seven to one to Republicans in Philadelphia. So basically, everyone's a Democratic primary is going to be the mayor. So right then and there, all those candidates were starting to identify people that could potentially be police commissioner. And, I, you know, I did my best to stay out of that because, you know, politics and that kind of thing is not, not really good to be mixed up in. And once the primary was over, and Michael Nutter was the one who won, and we're actually from my, you know, same neighborhood in West Philadelphia. And I knew him when he was a councilman, but basically over the summer, and the newspaper was trying to guess who he would pick for commissioner. And then it was so bizarre. I was sitting in my office that September, and I got a phone call on, on my private line. And it's a guy introduced himself, and I said, this isn't a police commander, who is this? And he said, "Um, listen, um, uh, Mr. Nutter would like to meet with you, but uh, I'm going to call you tomorrow at like 2 o'clock and be in your office, and we'll tell you where to go. And I thought, I actually laughed, I said, wow, cloak and dagger stuff, but I'll play along. So the next day, the same person called and gave me an address in uh, Society Hill, and it was um, uh, a private residence. And I walk over there, and when I go in, there's there's Michael Nutter, and there was a retired FBI agent I knew, and a couple of lawyers I recognized. And I was like, oh boy, you know, I'm sitting in this living room, and they're asking me a whole bunch of questions, and and you know they. They never said you're being interviewed for police commissioner, but but I was. Right. And when it was time to when I was done, uh, the guy whose house it was walks me to the door and he says, "Oh, um, uh, where's your driver?" I said, I-, "I walked over. This is like five blocks from the roundhouse." And he said, "Well, could you do me a favor when you leave? Could you exit to the right and go down to like Third Street and back around?" And I said, oh, I get it. The next candidate is probably waiting around the corner. And he just smiled. I said, okay, I'll walk I'll walk a block out of my way so the next guy doesn't see me. And I said to him, you realize by later tonight, everybody in the city will know who came in this house today because there's no <laughs> secrets in Philadelphia. <laughs> and it was. I got a call later on that afternoon from another candidate. He goes, hey, did you get interviewed too? And I started laughing. I said, see, you can't keep any secrets, but – At the time, new mayor and they, you know, had, I guess they didn't want somebody from the inside, so they got uh, Charles Ramsey, who had been the D.C. police uh, chief, and he was originally a deputy superintendent from Chicago PD. So they brought him in here, and um, I got a phone call from Mr. Nutter when he was on his way to the press conference to announce it, and we already knew. I got a call the night before. Right. And I said, well, he goes, hey, I just wanted to tell you I appreciate you being part of the process and, you know, the new commissioner is going to need a lot of help. And I said, listen, I'm dedicated to this department. It doesn't matter who the leader is. I'm going to help no matter what. And I did. I only worked for Commissioner Ramsey for, uh, I guess, about four months, five months. But um, I left on good terms with him and all the stuff I had that I forwarded to his staff and he appreciated that and... Um, what I liked about Commissioner Ramsey, you know, a lot of police leaders in his country aren't really cops. I mean, they right. they had a long history of administrative jobs. Commissioner Ramsey, and I always say this to people that are either you know friends or foes or they like him, they don't like him. You can't take away from him. He was a real cop. The first time I met him, and he said, you know, I looked over your career, it's very similar to mine in Chicago. And he told me he had always been in patrol, tactical, or narcotics. His entire—he never had an administrative job until he was deputy superintendent and then chief in Washington D.C. So I I said, "Yeah, (laughs) my careers kind of mirrored each other." And I said, "You know what? This guy is a real cop. He's not—you know—he's not a, a desk jockey. And it's true. And if you remember, while he was the commissioner in Philadelphia, when anything bad was happening down there." He was in full uniform, and he was out there on the street. In fact, when the uh, Phillies won the World Series, he worked all night. I was watching it on TV up here, and he was out in the men Guys I know from Philly said, yeah, he was right in the middle of everything. Wow. So, you know, you respect a leader like that. Yeah, you, there, you know.
0: there's a lot to be said for that. I remember, I mean, I was real young on the job, and we had a captain um, in Lancaster City who he was out on the street one night on patrol and he was, he was, uh, I can't remember if he was, if he rode with me or if he was with someone else. And I remember we went to a scene and it was kind of chaotic and there was a bunch of witnesses and I don't even remember what it was exactly an assault or a fight or something. And, uh, but we needed witness statements from a lot of witnesses. And, and, uh, he said to me, I'm I'm like a young, young cop. I'm (laughs) two, three years on the job. He's like, uh, officer Weaver, you know, Um, actually, no, you know what? I don't think he even asked me anything. I asked him, I'm like, Hey, Captain, would you mind getting that person's information over there? He's like, (laughs) no problem. No problem at all. It was, it was just a chaotic scene. And, and I think he was maybe even asking what he could do or whatever. And I mean, I, I'm never, you know, I still remember that, you know, he, he was like, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, I'll, I'll take care of that. And, um, it was, it was pretty cool, um, to, to see someone do that. And yeah, so, so, uh. So that didn't work out, and, and then you said like four or five months yeah. later you moved on?
3: Well, I'll tell you the interesting thing. Um, when I became chief of detectives, uh, Lynn Abraham was the district attorney then. A lot of respect for her. She was a prosecutor and a judge for a lot of years, and then she became a district attorney. And there was a press conference I had to go to with her for an officer that had been um, shot back in the 1960s. And he was partially paralyzed, and he ended up passing away in 2007. And the coroner in Bucks County, where he lives, said his injuries are a direct result of the bullet he'd been carrying in his body for the last 40, 41 years. So she had to hold a press conference about that. And I'd known her for years, and I said, you know, it'd probably be a good idea now that, you know, being in detectives, I'm going to be dealing with the district attorney's office a lot. And I said, uh, Lynn, can I like pick your brain and you know, meet with you? And she goes, Oh, sure. She goes, uh, somebody from my office will call you and we'll we'll meet for coffee one morning. And that's is what I like about her sincerity. She she meant it. I got a phone call about two or three days later and said, uh, the district attorney would like to meet you at this Starbucks in Old City in Philadelphia. And I think it was for 7.30. And I figured, I'm going to get there about 10 after 7. I don't want to be late for this. When I got there, she was already there. <laughs> <laughs> so we sat down. And I never forget, she said to me, she goes, you know, you're in the running for a police commissioner. And I said, "Yeah, so I've been told. And she said, well, listen. She goes, you know, I would. they asked me who, who I thought should be commissioner. And she said, I only gave them two names, yours and one other person. She says, you're the only two people I think – Worthy of that job. But she said, but look, I'm going to tell you. She said, if you can't move up, move out. She said, you you could be a chief of police anywhere. She said, honestly, you can make a lot of money in the private sector, and she didn't let me answer. She goes, but I know you, you love being a cop, you just love being on the job, so the civilian world for you right now isn't even an option. She said, but you could, you could run your own department somewhere if you don't get this job, so I took it as I said, you know what, I think she already knows I'm not getting this job, and she's giving me advice. And sure enough, when the newspaper reported that I was coming to Lancaster, she was one of the first ones to call me up. She goes, "Oh, I'm so happy for you, and you know I can see you took my advice, yeah, and this is a good move for you. I think you'll really you'll really you know you'll really excel at this, and you'll be fine and if you need anything, call me so every few years, I run into her, and it's just some of the best advice I ever took and coming yeah. to Lancaster has been. Honestly, a godsend. My mother tells me all the time. She said, things happen for a reason. She said, if you stayed in Philadelphia and you had gotten a job, you probably would have been a chain smoker and a heavy <laughs> drinker by now. Uh, your, your youngest one probably wouldn't have been born. To, right. You know, You came to Lancaster, and it was a nice, refreshing start and like i said my youngest daughter was born here so first yeah. sadler born in lancaster county yeah so i mean we're lancasterians now man yeah. this is this is home for all of us
0: yeah that's awesome i i think i i i just appreciate that that story and how you did rise up in the in the ranks i think that's one thing you know obviously i only re- i retired as a sergeant so that you know that was the only like first level uh supervisor uh but even like in you know, times I've been able to talk to college students that want to get into law enforcement and talk to them about leadership and talk to uh the guys and gals that I was able to lead. One thing I tried to express to them is that you, even now in your career, you are you are setting for yourself an example. Um, if you want to be in a leadership role, People are going to remember what type of cop you were. That's if right. you're a dirt bag or yeah, just like right. a slug <laughs> and you don't do anything,
3: they don't forget like, that.
0: They don't forget that that's once right. you get promoted, they're going to remember that. So, uh, you know, I, I recently had a chance to talk to some college students. I was just telling them like you lead yourself well now. Yeah. And as you get in on in life and and if you get into law enforcement, lead yourself well early on in your career because you're, you're setting for yourself, an exam, you're sending an example to other people of how you're going to be and and what kind of person you are even early on oh, in yeah. your career. So um, oh. so I can appreciate <laughs> someone like you who climbed all the way from patrol all the way up through. i think I think its I mean, I think it's commendable because, like you said, there are a lot of yeah. uh, chiefs and commissioners who oh, yeah. are just academics and and really do not understand It's, it's, the it's job. very
3: sad. I mean, it's just all around the country. I, I really enjoy when I read about a police leader anywhere in the country that is still like a real leader, and I love reading about that. And then I cringe when I see somebody uh, immediately throwing their department under the bus before they even find out yeah. you know, where the investigation hasn't even started yet. Yeah. And are already you know, like, well, let me get it away from me. And that's really disheartening because you literally – you let your entire department down when they see you on the news saying, Oh, they, you know, you're removing yourself from there. Well, you're you're the bucks should stop at you. It's your yeah. department, so yeah. You can't push away from it. You know, there's uh it's fun being the chief when things are good, but you have to accept the fact that you have to be the chief when things yeah. are going really bad. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I, I always I appreciated that like I don't know if it was a Philly swagger or that just like that <laughs> that like Philly you know, way of doing things. Cause when you came to the city, like I remember, you know, whenever you're getting a new chief, everyone's like, what's yeah. this guy like? You yeah, know, who's what's he gonna, guy? who's this guy? And, uh, and I, I remember, uh, the first couple times a newspaper interviewed you about something. And I remember you were like, you had quotes like, this thug out here thinking he can do whatever he wants to do or whatever. I'm like, I like this guy. <laughs> you know, just, you're just, I was, you could tell you had done the job. Like you could tell that you understood what uh, the officers on the street were were going through yeah. and what they well, had dealt with. I didn't
3: know I had a Philly accent until I moved here. And people were saying, yeah, you got that Philly accent. I'm like, what? What, what Philly accent? You know, when it finally dawned on me, I was watching one of those crime shows where they, you know, review a case and how it unraveled, and it was from Philadelphia. And I'm listening to the people being interviewed, and I go, "Oh my god, dude, <laughs> that's how I talk." I there is a Philly accent. I mean, when you live in Philly your whole life up to that point, everybody sounds the same, so right. you don't realize you have an accent. Yeah. But oh. um, people, some of the guys in Lancaster said, oh, we can really hear it when like, you're like fired up, <laughs> like at those press conferences when they would ask me one of those really questions that you almost wanted to say, are you seriously asking me that question? Right? And I would get, I could feel the blood rushing in my head, but you know, you try to maintain your right. cool.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, you always maintained your cool, but uh, I was just always, I don't know. People are so concerned with how they say things now and stuff. And and you were just like, no, I, yeah, that guy's an idiot. He got what he deserved. You know, that, that was just kind of your attitude sometimes. I was like, ah, I like this guy, you know. <laughs> um, so like hearing you talk and everything, obviously you you were born in Philadelphia, grew up in Philadelphia. Yep. Okay.
3: Yep, born and raised in West Philadelphia. Both sides of my family are from West Philly. Um, you know, it was a really great neighborhood to grow up in. Uh, you know, we had crime problems in my neighborhood. There were gangs in my neighborhood. But, like, my block, uh, the people on my block were either government workers, police, fire, school teachers. My mother's a school teacher. Um, the sergeant that lived on our block, uh, Mr. Jennings, great, great man. He used to, from the time we were old enough to walk, he used to tell all the boys in the neighborhood, uh, my mission is to get one of you on the police department. And sure enough, he actually always, before he passed, he loved the fact that he got two of us. I joined Philadelphia Police, and my next-door neighbor, uh, Bernard, joined the state police right about the time I joined Philly. I think he joined the state the the year after I came on Philadelphia. Okay. So he loved the fact that he got two cops on his block. So, I mean, and we we admired him because he was, you know, Sergeant Jennings. When we were little kids, he was still an officer, and then he got— got promoted and um i never forget i was waiting for a bus to come back home at 60th and market and this unmarked police car pulled off and it was mr jennings and he goes come on keith i'll give you a ride you know i'm, I'm going home so i jumped in the unmark with him and we we're cruising down 60th street which is like a business sector then and his police radios blaring and i'm thinking man like and mr jennings was just a really decent human being i thought very confident, but just very, very humble. And I said, man, he is like, I always knew he was cool, but being in the police car with him, and I, that's when I really felt like, you know, I think this is for me. Okay. <laughs> and I didn't follow, well, it was 22 when I got on, I went to college first, but, um, you know, then I realized, no, I really had the police bug. So, um. <laughs> Growing up on that block, all the moms and dads looked out for all the kids. And my best friend in life is still my best friend. We've been friends since I was four. And uh, he lives in Florida now. And I talk to him almost every week. And we always talk about the block we grew up on. Uh, I remember one time sitting on the steps when we were finally hit puberty and we're developing. And that's when gangs would try to recruit you. And we were sitting on one kid's step and we saw these two hoodlums coming down the street and we're like, "Uh uh-oh. And in my neighborhood, if you ran, it was gonna be worse. So it's like, oh man, what's gonna happen here? And they were clearly coming towards us. And all of a sudden, uh, this kid's father, Mr. Wilson, came out of nowhere. He, he, you know, dads and moms sense danger. He came out on the porch and he was like, pretty stocky guy and he had like a tank top on. And he kinda of put his hands behind his back and flexed. And those guys saw him, he had a beard kinda of like you had, and beards weren't that popular then. And he was kind of scary looking. And they stopped on a dime and about face and got high to but that's how it was then. Right. They figure, well, if that kid's father comes off the steps, he wasn't gonna be polite. He right. knew why they were coming down our block. Right. And we we never saw those two huh. <laughs> on our street anyway. I right. Mean, we saw him in the neighborhood, but they kind of stayed off our block. They yeah. knew we had a police sergeant lived on our street, so you know, it was really nice to grow up in. And me and my friend Mark talk about that all the time.
0: Yeah. You know. That's cool. Uh so no, you didn't have any other family members then that were in law enforcement? I did
3: actually. Uh my dad's uh older brother Lou, Lou Sadler, joined in nineteen sixty one. He only stayed for three years. Police were grossly underpaid in those days and um, he ended up working for Amtrak, where he's making a lot more money than the police department. But he did three years, and I used to always like the picture my grandmom had at her house of him in his uniform. And it was so funny now. I came on in 1981. He had long since left the department. Right. And there were still people, they would look, go, Are you Louis Sadler's son? I go, No, I'm his brother Jimmy's son. And they would go, Oh, man. Oh, you're Uncle Lou. Because uh, Uncle Lou was about 6'3, he was, he was a big man. And he was tough. And this uh, detective one time saw my nameplate and he said, Oh, he said, man, he goes, your, your uncle's, a, and he was still alive then. He goes, your uncle's a real gentleman. I knew him from the neighborhood. He goes, but let me tell you, your uncle was tough. He goes, he got a call. He said, uh, they worked in the 16th district in the lower end of West Philly. And Uncle Lou was walking a footbeat, apparently, on a business sector. And a call came out in the bar. There was a guy in there. I think he'd stabbed a couple people and he's holding everybody at bay with the knife. And he goes, man, when we pulled up, your uncle was already in there and he had the guy with the knife in custody and he had, he had laid out a couple of guys that wanted to fight apparently, didn't like him locking this guy up. And he said, yeah, they were sprawled out. He goes, your uncle single-handedly took that bar. I was like, whoa. So I, I got to ask Uncle Lou about this. So I did and he said, oh, he goes, no, I remember that. He said... The guy, you know, I just kind of look, man. He goes, I don't want to have to, you know, shoot you. I want you to drop the knife. And, you know, he said, look, if I had to shoot him, I was going to shoot him. But he wasn't coming at me and he finally dropped the knife. But when he dropped the knife, then him and his crew wanted to fight. And he goes, you know, uh, you know, he says, I just hand, you know, I handled it. (laughs) I was like, wow. Because my dad is a big man. My dad is about 6'2". And he's he's a year and a half younger than Lou, and he used to tell me when they went to Overbrook High, uh, you know, my dad was like a star athlete and my uncle was too. But you know, uh, he used to keep the hoodlums away from his little brother. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was the one person I had in uh, law enforcement. Okay. I have a cousin in D.C. that uh, I think she's an agent with um, uh, with the IRS. Okay. law enforcement. So, yeah, that's the three of us. That's but it. the
0: the main <laughs> the main uh a pivotal moment was knowing that sergeant on your block or knowing that officer that lived on your it block. Really it really was. Cool. It it
3: meant a lot and I thought, you know, he's an honorable man and everybody respects him. And uh and he never, you know, if you saw him out of uniform, you wouldn't know he was a cop. He didn't come off like, "Hey, I'm I'm the neighborhood cop." He was right. just a dad like everybody else. So, you get on the job. What was your favorite what was
0: your favorite um position or what or unit that you worked on? Was it you know, patrol it was, <laughs> or was it
3: something else? It's funny. I mean, I think I had so many nice assignments and other people said nice. You you worked the worst neighborhoods in the city and it meant a lot. I just never had a bad assignment. I mean, I started out in South Philly and patrol and then North Philly. I made sergeant, and I was in uh, an area called Germantown, which can be pretty pretty wild. Uh, and then I got to go to narcotics. It was not undercover narcotics for two years. When I made lieutenant, I was in patrol in Center City. And then I went to what was called the stakeout unit then, which is the SWAT unit now. And I spent four and a half years there. And then I made captain, and I was captain of the 17th District in South Philly. Then I made inspector, and I had Northwest Division, which was two districts at the time. Then I went to East Division, which was the busiest place in the city. I had the three busiest districts. And then when I made chief, and like I told you, for him was patrol, narcotics, forensics, and detective. And it's funny, I think you know, all those ranks were fun, but nothing can describe what it was like being a street sergeant in Philadelphia. That really was some of the best times that I ever had. Um I just liked it just was great being a, a street sergeant. Uh, you know, you'd pull up the one thing in this whole world that everybody recognized, you can have, you know, three stars on your uniform, you can have spread eagles, you could have the captain's bars. Your average citizen has no clue what that means. But everybody knows what those three chevrons mean for yeah. sergeant. I mean when I was a sergeant I could be on a large detail with all the brass standing next to me and people would come up to you, Oh, that there's a he's in charge. He's the sergeant. He's got would be like, you know, the police commissioner could be standing there and they'd go, Oh, the the guy with the stripes, that's the guy in charge and it used to be it was funny. It was just um that was just a great rank because you were a supervisor, but you were out in the field the whole tour just like the troops were. Right. And you learn a lot about leadership then, because you got to remember, I was 26 years old. Everybody I was supervising was older than me. Everyone, there was one guy from my academy class, and he was a year older than me. He was the closest one to my age. Right. And I was supervising people with 30 years on the job. Wow. And you have to go with the mentality. Yeah, they're going to look at you first like, this guy's a kid. How's he going to be a supervisor? But you have to pretend like, look, they're going to say that if I was fifty years old, you go, like, oh, look at this old geezer. So you just have to say, look, you're the new sergeant, no matter what your your age, race, height, you know, whether you're skinny or fat, they're going to look at you like, oh, get a load of this guy. So right, didn't matter, and very soon, I mean, that that you know, in fact, people forgot how young I actually was. Right. You yeah. Know? So. Yeah. That really. That was a lot of fun. It really was being a sergeant. And I tell people, there used to be people in Flake, "Oh, the only reason to make sergeant is so you can make lieutenant." I said, "Well, you know, what? you're probably going to be a horrible supervisor if you have that mentality, right? Because you make sergeant because you want to be a sergeant, right?
0: Yeah, I I would totally agree with that. I didn't I didn't start taking the sergeant's test until I was I was uh ready ready to uh to do it i mean i was like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna just take it just to take it i wanted to make sure that i was ready to ready to do it i felt
3: i took it i felt i was totally ready to do it and uh, i (laughs) when i was in the police academy i remember it's it's a wonder i got the job because when i had the psychological test the psychiatrist the psychologist asked me he goes well uh you know if you if you get hired as a police officer here uh you know, uh, how far would you take your career in the police department? I said, I'm a police commissioner. And he looked at me and I went, uh-oh. This guy's <laughs> going to think I have delusions of grandeur. He goes, oh, come on. He goes, is that being realistic? And I think he was trying to see if he could get me upset. And I said, somebody has to be police commissioner. I said, it could be me just as much as the guy that's in the job now. And he and he laughed and he goes, that's a good point. And I thought, oh, but I thought when he gave me the oh come on, I said, Oh no. He's right. gonna say this kid is nuts, man. There's no <laughs> way he should be a cop. Yeah. But it <laughs> obviously worked out. But yeah. I kept that goal. I said that was a long term goal. But the short term was learn the job and, and start getting promoted. I mean um I I wanted it. not, you know, just for the, the pay and the and the um the idea of having rank, but I just felt like, you know, um, I just felt like I could be a leader and I could, you know, do something honorable and, you know, do the job the way I wanted to. The same sergeant I was mentioning earlier, he said, listen, every time you get promoted, that's another group of people you don't have to take any crap off of. And that used to make me laugh, so I would joke about that when I would try to encourage people, listen, if you take the sergeant's test, you just eliminated thousands of people you don't have to take any crap off of. And they would laugh at that. Oh, it's a good way to look at it. Yeah,
0: (laughs) it is. It's a valid point. It's a valid point. Um, I, I would tell guys, too, that, I thought would make good uh supervisors, good uh sergeants. Encourage them to take the test and I'm like, "Listen. Do you want to be working for that guy over there? He's taking the test. <laughs> right. If he if he gets it, you might be working yeah. for him." You oh, know, yeah. that type of thing. So
3: <laughs> Oh, that uh, is so true. Yeah. That's the, I I used to call that motivation. Yeah. If you need some motivation, think of the worst person you ever worked for, <laughs> and say to yourself, "You would actually like admit that this guy is more talented than you and can study harder and take a promotion test." Right?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. We talked about at the beginning when I was introducing you. Obviously, highly decorated. You've been involved in in a lot on the job. Um, I know that you personally have been involved in in three uh, officer involved shootings and i I think what i what I want people to to understand about that is you have to be a certain type of officer to get involved in in three officer involved shootings. Most officers are never involved in any shootings in their in their whole career hmm. and so to be involved in three uh means that you were a certain type of officer and how how would you describe the way that you did the job i mean obviously, you said you worked in some really rough areas but still working in rough areas, you need to be a certain type of officer to to get involved in stuff. What? How would you
3: describe yourself? Yeah, I mean, yourself? It, it is very rare with all the 600,000 plus officers in the United States, it is extremely rare to get involved in a shooting. And, and you can work in New York City and never be involved in a shooting. And now, the difference, I, I always hear, I used to hear people in Philly say, Oh, I was on the job twenty years and never even had my gun out the holster. Well, I kind of look at you a little strange because if you're going into a bank robbery call, I would think you'd want to have your gun out. Right. If it's a robbery in progress. It doesn't mean you're going to shoot somebody. Or if you're stopping a car that fits description of somebody that just robbed somebody pointed shotgun, I would think you'd have your weapon out, you know, as a precaution. Right. Um, uh, so I'm always leery of people like that. And I wonder what kind of cop were they? They probably, you know, were the fifth guy to ride in on every job and mm-hmm. you know, they read the newspaper for two hours instead of patrolling their sector. But um those shootings, I mean, there's no way to predict how that's gonna happen and you really don't know how you're gonna respond to that until it actually happens. And the good thing about Philadelphia, um when you're involved in a shooting, besides you know having to go to internal affairs and whatever, they have a group that gets together for a debriefing of officers that have been involved in shootings, and it's great because then you're talking to a group of people that know exactly what you're feeling. And uh, I became part of that group for many years, even when I was still a cat, when I was a captain. I even got called down to the FBI once. They had a shooting with a couple of our officers and one of their agents, and they convened that and asked would I come down there and and meet with the FBI agent and the two Philly officers. And it was funny. The FBI agent, he was a little snarky, and the first thing he said to me was, well, Captain, what qualifies you to talk to me about a shooting? I said, well, I've been involved in three fatal shootings. And he went, Oh, sorry, I asked. He goes, "I'm sorry." He goes, "I'm embarrassed that I even question your <laughs> your expertise." Right. And he was actually an all right guy. Yeah, I talked to him for a while after we broke out. Um, but I like I tell folks, you know, officers don't wake up in the morning and hope they get into a shooting. And, right. You know you you would hope that in your entire career that you never have to get in one, because there's a lot that comes along with that. I mean you know nowadays especially because even when you know it's it's a justified shooting you have everybody second guessing and you know people decide that they know what you should have done and you know when somebody's coming at you with a knife or a handgun or an, um in my case, they were actually, you know, firing at you. <laughs> so yeah. you know, you can't say, Please kind sir, stop shooting at me and you know, we can talk about it. That's not the time for that. You respond to how people attack you and they were attacks. Right. Um, uh, and fortunately I'm still here to talk about it. Yeah. But um there's a lot that goes through that because unless you're just not a, a decent human being, even when the person initiated it. And uh, the, one of the shootings, the guy had killed a, a police officer and a woman in a bar. They, they went to rob this bar on Christmas Eve. And the officer, who I was his sergeant, and this guy was a brave man, Freddie Dukes. And he took on the guy holding the gun, but didn't know that the guy's partner had come through the back door. Mm. And he got shot in the back, true cowardly way. Um, that the criminal did, killed him, and there was some poor lady sitting at the bar that caught a stray bullet. She got killed, too. Um, and three days later, SWAT team, and we're surrounding a house that he's in. Uh, and even though uh, he ended up dead uh, when he was laying there and waiting for me to cart him out of there, still, like, yeah, I mean, there here's a guy that killed somebody I thought a lot of and you're a human being. And I still felt bad about that, that it had to come to that. Mm. I mean, that guy could have just, when when we got there, he just could have came out and just said, yeah, yeah, you got me. But he had said uh, that he was not going back to jail. He had told his girlfriend, I'm not going. And he was say he was a hardened criminal. So um, like I tell people, it's not like TV. You know, nobody's high-fiving and going, oh, yeah, that, What they are when you get back to your, you know, headquarters, they're happy that they're talking to you. Right. And they'll say, hey, you know, good job, and they'll pat you on the back. But what they mean is that you're here. Yeah. And they'll tell you, hey, you know, you're going to go home tonight to your family, and that's the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's none of that bravado like you see, you know, they try to depict cops like you're sitting around and, you know, you're just – talking crazy stuff and it's just not true right you get involved in a shooting it you know you're a human being you know that you had to take a life you know there was no other alternative but that doesn't mean you feel great about it right so yeah but that's why you know i tell people you need to you need to stay grounded spiritually with your family and um i know after uh the one was a suicide by police he had went out and fired a starter pistol on a busy business sector. And everybody said this guy was shooting, you know, and the house was surrounded. negotiators were talking to him. And they said, hey, this guy's coming out, but we didn't negotiate this, so be careful. And he came out, and, you know, I was directing him, hands up the whole bit. And then he turned, he was about 6'8", he turned around and he pulled it out and he came at us and, you know, it looked like a real gun. And right. that one, you know, he was a suicide by police that didn't want to hurt anybody. So he knew if he you know, found out his history, he had been, I think, a student at like an Ivy League college and was brilliant, got hooked on drugs and, you know, it kind of messed him up mentally. And his family didn't even sue the city. They just said it was tragic and they knew at some point that they, he wanted to die. And, you know. Right. Um, the other ones, no. They, uh, the one guy wanted to die, but he wanted to take a few of us with him. So that didn't work out for him. Yeah, uh, but that they were all very, very. Except for the last one, the other two were very close calls. Yeah.
0: So I, the first one was, um, if I have my dates right, 1986, and that was the one with the the 87. cop. 87. Okay, the cop killer.
3: No, that was that was 1990. The first one was a guy had been jumping on different public transportation buses since the morning, pointing guns at riders and bus drivers, and then I guess it came, he, he didn't fire a weapon until early that afternoon. He gets on a bus, and he points the gun at the driver, and a cop happened to be coming by, and the driver signaled him, and he opened fire on the cop, and the officer returned fire and missed him. The guy ran in the park and I was literally holding roll call at the fourteenth district and I heard it on the radio and at the time uh, with my three oldest kids were when I left for work, they were playing outside a block from this park where I used to walk my dogs and there was a creek that divided this sides. And I I know that park and I said, This guy's gonna run in the park and come out on the other end of my neighborhood. So I <laughs> I dropped what I was doing and I jumped in the lieutenant's car. He wasn't happy at the time (laughs) because his car was sitting there and I had the keys. I jumped in his car and flew over there and I, I knew where I thought he would come up. And when I got there, there were two plainclothes cops and another uniformed cop and they all had the same idea. And we're saying, well, let's stand by. There's cops trying to, to, you know, get him out from the other side. They're doing a sweep. And now it's rush hour. And uh, an old man pulls up his car and gets out. This is a brave old man. And they got an interview from him. And he said, hey, fellas, uh, there's a guy back behind those bushes there. He's got a gun. And uh, the one officer, the other uniform officer, took off running. I'm going, hey, hey. Well, I'm trying to tell him, like, whoa, let's approach. Well, that guy popped up like a jack-in-the-box, and he was shooting at that officer. And I'm running after him, so we both hit the dirt the two plainclothes cops thought we were hit. And the one officer, and he actually was up here for one of the conventions, um, he ended up uh, d- delivering literally to family. I mean, we all shot at the guy, but this plainclothes officer had a direct, the guy never saw the two plainclothes officers. The gotcha. a guy, and a male and female officer. And, um, but that guy was literally, he was a suicide by police, but he wanted to take a bunch of us with him. And that was real. <laughs> that was a little. That was a little. When uh, it started sinking in later that night, I thought, man, now that was that was something. That, right. that really was. Yeah. But um, <laughs>
0: do you think? Do you think d- any of the other ones you were involved in were that? Were there sh- uh, shots fired at you guys at any of the other ones?
3: Yeah the uh, the one that killed the officer. He had the um, homicide was trying to track him for a few days. They they had a dis- they knew who he was and lo and behold he was hiding out of his girlfriend's who was a correctional officer if you could believe that uh she was she was hiding him she knew he was wanted for murder i mean it was you know right uh and she wasn't home i think she was actually at work and he was there by himself and homicide called us and in those days philly was going through all kinds of budget crunches you weren't allowed to hire overtime so literally, it was me, um, sergeant, and three other SWAT officers. We were the only ones working the whole city. And Homicide called us and said, hey, we know where this guy is, let's go get him. So we then started snowing, never forget that. Major snowstorm right in the middle of it. And we were so shorthanded, the five of us were going to be the entry team. The lieutenant from Homicide took the front of the house. His two detectives took the rear alley so uh me and one officer had the first floor and the sergeant the other two started up the steps this guy opened fire on him and they're like yeah he's in the front room he dives out the front uh, bedroom window and they had porch roofs and he runs along the, and the lieutenant, poor guy, he comes running and he goes, the guy's out on the roof. And I'm thinking, well, you know, like, you <laughs> like we should be shooting at him, I don't know. <laughs> so we run out and me and the one officer were running down in the snow and we can hear he just dove through, it literally drove, dove through a window I and mean, you could hear the glass mm-hmm. shattering. And he had a grandmother and her granddaughter hostage in there And we find out later, he ran to their back door. Now, the two detectives didn't know that he was, they were still at the other house. Okay. The grandmother told us later, he opened the door and it looked like he was going to leave. And she said, it looked like he got spooked. And he he shut the door and came. He thought that we were in the back, you know, waiting for him and we weren't. He could have, he literally would have escaped. Right. And uh, I'll never forget, I was behind the car and the other officer, uh, Tim Tim McCarran, says to me, Hey, Lieutenant, I don't think that's a good spot for you. He goes, Why don't you try that tree? Those old Philly oak trees. I mean, it was like probably four feet wide at least. And I said, You know what? He's right. No sooner did I get behind the tree and post stop, this guy opened fire out the front door. The guys, the sergeant and the other two cops, had come along the porch roof and they had secured the front window. And they said, where the bullets were hitting in the snow where your footprints were when you were behind that car. Wow. So I always embarrass this officer's lieutenant now. I think he just retired. Every time we're in anywhere together, I do emb- I said, look. He goes, oh, I said, look, man, dude, you probably saved my life. So <laughs> anytime I see, especially when I see young cops, and I tell him, you better listen to this guy because this guy gave me the best advice I ever got in my life. Right. And after he f- opened fire on us the second time, he ran back in and he asked the grandmom, is it better to live or die? And she was like a sweet lady. She tried to talk him into surrendering. And she she told, she said, you know, I told him, hey, it's better to live. Why don't you just give up? We'll, we'll walk out with you, you know. And she said he went behind a chair in her dining room and she heard the, he shot himself in the head. Right. And she and the granddaughter came running out, man. And she's like, "I think he shot himself." And eventually, we went in and found him dead. Uh, But yeah, that was that was. I mean, by then it was like eight inches snow on the ground. It was a, it was something. So,
0: and it's incredible that you had like a a team of five SWAT guys for the whole set. Yeah, that
3: was. I mean, that's a twenty four seven unit, right? And that was one of the jobs that made them realize you can't operate like that anymore. Overtime has to be paid when it needs to be. Right After that, we never, for a job like that, We would have had like seven on the entry team. We would have had two in the back, two in the front. We would have had Nanny Sniper in the back and the front, and plus uniform patrol. And, you know, you just never would do it. But tell you how things had changed. When I was a rookie cop, when when SWAT showed up, they came with two guys. One would have a shotgun, one would have an M16. If you can imagine that in row houses, probably wasn't a good idea. (laughs) But they would take a house, just two of them, and they would sweep the whole house. Right. But things were different, you know. Um, the worst that you would ever, the first gun arrest I ever had was like an old beat-up um caliber uh, handgun with seven shots. And I mean, it was like older than my grandparents. So, yeah. I mean, those were the kind of guns you got off the street then. By the end of the 80s, you were getting 9 millimeters and forty fives and Uzis and you know high end uh, you know assault rifles i mean all of that changed changed everything right and the police got them too that's why i cringe when i hear people say oh the police don't need militarized weapons like you know who are you kidding right uh, the the criminals have ak47s they have high power rifles i mean you know <laughs> you're not you're not going to go in with a 38 you know smith and wesson like the old days
0: That was part one of my conversation with retired Chief Keith Sadler. Make sure you listen to part two next week. Uh, before I close out this week's episode, I wanted to get after a couple things. First of all, we have a brand new segment on Diaconostic Cops Calling. I want to thank uh, some of my patrons who completed a poll and other people who have reached out to me and helped me land on this. If you uh, have listened to episode 13, Q uh, the Dip, K U the dip D I P is going to be a segment on the podcast. Cue the dip stands for kicking up the dust in pursuit, and it will highlight an officer in law enforcement that has gone above and beyond uh, kicking up the dust in pursuit of their duties and getting after it. So this, this week uh, and on this episode, officer Irwin of the Baltimore County police department is this week's cue the dip Uh, on May 8th, uh, 2021, just uh, earlier this month. Uh, There was a triple murder in Baltimore County. Uh, There was a fire lit at a house uh, at the time of these murders. And there was an officer-involved shooting uh, related to the suspect in these triple murders and and, uh, the same suspect lighting uh, his own house on on fire. Uh, So just a little background to this call. There were several 911 calls, report of gunshots. Uh, from those 911 callers, report of a man with a gun, report of a woman screaming, um, report of a suspect breaking a door down. Uh, the report uh, from 911 callers also stated that the suspect possibly had mental health problems. Uh, while, while at least one of the 911 callers was on the phone, gunshots uh, were fired um, and a uh, house exploded and was on fire, according to 911 callers. Uh, There were several gunshot victims on the ground, um, and one of the 911 callers was on the line when police arrived. Uh, Officer Irwin was the first on scene. I'm just going to play some radio traffic leading up to his arrival on the scene. 226,
2: 227, 225, any canine on a channel. It's going to be a weapons call. Murray Rose. Murray Road, also Kelly's and Cantwell. Says a male shooting at the neighbor at. 10-4, supervisor on the channel. 10-4, we're also getting a structure fire in for that um, 7300 block of Murray. Car heard popping noises and then heard a boom and then saying a the house is on fire. we are saying it was seven shots, a handgun, in reference to the first call that came in. And then we're getting a call for Kelly's court um, for an explosion and Kimberly Court and Marie for an explosion. All right, in reference to the first call that came in, for Marie is advising that uh, she hears a female screaming, advised that they heard the three shots at a male who lives at location. hospital has a mental health disorder and has signs advising that the FBI is after him. And they also heard the explosion and sound that like, shake. So if they found some pretty dark smoke in the All right, Temple, Dark smoke in the area. Time is 643. We're just going to make fire aware of the shots fired call just in case it is for whatever reason. 27, it's a large clip coming out 26000 all right. They see smoke in the area. Yeah, shots fired, shots fired, shots fired. 10, 4, 10, 3 is on the channel. Shots fired. Time is 644. 47, 10, 50, departmental. 10, 4, 10, 50, departmental. 644, any medic needed for that? No, it's just me. security and green gauge. I'm just something with somebody else. Where security green gauge. Where's he at? 26, where are you at, the Shots fired? 26, Shots fired, Shots fired, subject down. 10 Shots fired, subject down. Time is 644. What's your exact location? Maury and Kelly's, Maury and Kelly's. Maury and Kelly. Down. 10 four, subject down. 10 on the channel. Get the six medic 644. All units, stand by. <laughs> Be passing, you Come on, Jim, quick, 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 quick. First out let me know. How many I got? Two subjects down. All right, two subjects down. Time is 646 hours. Hey, two house house All right, more shots fired. Uh, right, two were getting uh out here. Three people down. Two people down. All right, two people down. More shots fired. No. All right, three people down. Signal 13. Time is 646 hours.
0: As you were probably able to ascertain from uh, these radio transmissions Almost immediately upon Officer Irwin arriving, he exits his police cruiser and is almost immediately um, shot at by the suspect. Officer Irwin gets cover. Um, he figures out and ascertains where the suspect is. He moves to new cover to get eyes on the suspect, and then he engages the suspect. Uh, more officers show up, and more shots are fired. Um, there, Like I said earlier, there was a 911 caller still on the line when Officer Irwin arrived. Uh, and reports that the suspect, uh, that 911 caller reported that the suspect was still, was shooting at the police, um, and that he was then acting like he was down, but that he was still uh, shooting. Ultimately, the suspect succumbed to his injuries. In addition, three people were murdered by the suspect before he was killed by police. I'm glad Officer Irwin and the other officers are okay and made it through their shift. He truly deserves the cue the dip segment on this episode. Secondly, as I referenced on social media, uh, this past week, the Chicago PD has released a new foot pursuit policy uh, that will be effective as of June 11th. It's a mess, and I wanted to break down why it's so terrible. The Chicago Police Department news release about this policy is readily available uh, online, and their release uh, basically highlighted uh, certain parts of the revised policy. So the highlights of this policy that I'm going to read are from uh, the Chicago Police Department's news release. I have not read the full policy, but I'm trusting that since this came from CPD, uh, it's accurate. So I'm just going to read down through what this policy is calling for and what's going to now be required of Chicago Police Department uh, police officers. First, reminding officers to begin any interaction with tactics meant to reduce the possibility of a foot pursuit. First of all, any officer worth anything is already doing this. Um, so that's, that's kind of like a mute point to me. Uh, second point or second highlight, defining foot pursuits as appropriate only when there is probable cause for an arrest or it is believed an individual has committed, is committing or is about to commit a crime. So my question to that is, Basically, flight from a car by a passenger on a traffic stop, you cannot pursue. So, if an officer pulls over, you know, Joe Citizen and he has a passenger in the car and that passenger takes off from the car, uh, the police are not going to be able to pursue because, as a passenger in that car, at that point, there is no probable cause for an arrest of that passenger. Um, However, that passenger is not free to leave. That vehicle stop or free to flee that vehicle stop. Uh, but based on this new policy, if that would happen, um, the officer would not be able to uh, chase that pasture. Um, say you stop someone for an on view crime, but it's minor and only takes a citation and not arrest. Uh, too bad, so sad, you're going to have to let them run. So you stop someone for let's say littering, you see them litter in front of you, or you see them uh, drinking alcohol in public, uh, if that's a violation in Chicago, and you try to stop that person and they take off running. According to this new policy, you're not going to be able to chase them, you're just going to have to let them run. The third highlight from this new policy prohibiting foot pursuits stemming from minor traffic offenses kind of goes back to the point I was just talking about most pro I would like to say most proactive solid police work is initiated from minor traffic stops and person stops. Um, It's not a shocker here, but those willing to commit felonies really don't care about committing minor crimes. And most of the time, felonies are not committed in front of police officers. Those minor crimes are. And when police engage with uh, people committing those minor crimes, that's what leads to Uh, The arrests of people with large quantities of drugs and guns, um, people with warrants that have engaged in criminal activity, um, so those types of things. But, uh, you know, prohibiting foot pursuits stemming from minor traffic offenses, it's crazy. The best bet, if you're a criminal in Chicago, and believe me, they know this, is to run uh, because most likely you're not going to be chased. Another highlight, detailing tactics to avoid a foot pursuit, including continual communication with the subject, encouraging officers to position themselves in such a way to reduce the opportunity of of a foot chase. I mean, that sounds nice, but it's already done. Um, And if it worked, then foot pursuits wouldn't happen. I mean, officers every day try to maintain the tactical advantage uh, when they stop someone to try to prevent that person from running and, and fleeing. Um, they engage in giving verbal direction and commands and directives to get on the ground, to stop those sort of things. Like that, that sounds really nice, but that's already done. Another highlight, outlining alternatives to foot pursuits that should always be considered by officers, including establishing a surveillance or containment area and or apprehending an identified suspect at another time or place. How do you maintain surveillance on someone who flees? You chase them. Let's say you, you do set up a surveillance. Let's say you want to stop someone. You set up a surveillance. You set up a perimeter uh, because you're sure the suspect is going to run. What happens when the suspect reaches your perimeter and doesn't stop? Well, it depends. Let's keep reading this mess. Jump into the next uh, highlight. Ensuring circumstances surrounding a foot pursuit are considered before any foot pursuit takes place. Officers must ask themselves if the need to apprehend the subject is worth the risk to responding officers, the public, or the subject. So basically, they're asking officers under stress to flesh that out. To consider if the foot pursuit and the need to apprehend the subject is worth the risk to responding officers, the public, and the subject. And officers need to figure that out in the moment. Before, I I guess, before they pursue, or while they're pursuing, or both. next highlight prohibiting foot pursuits for criminal offenses less than a class a misdemeanor unless the person poses an obvious threat to the community or any person so what does that include what does an offense less than a class a misdemeanor include well among other things it, it can include thefts under 500 dollars and vandalisms according to illinois law so if you're a victim of a theft or a vandalism where the suspect flees upon police arrival so sorry, Mr. or Mrs. Victim, your safety, your property, your hard work, and your law-abiding well ways,
1: they don't matter. They don't matter. What
0: matters in this, Mr. and Mrs. Victim, is the criminal. But I tell you what we can do. What we can do is we can jump up to one of the other highlights. and We can yell at the suspect to stop. Nope, he's not stopping. He's still running. He's not listening to me. He's fleeing. Up, oh, I can't chase him. Sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Victim. I can't chase him. Uh, what we can do is I'll take your report for you, and we'll never figure out who that person is. I, I mean, this is, this is the most asinine stuff I've ever read in my life. Next highlight or low light of this new policy, discontinu- discontinuing foot pursuits if someone is injured, and requires immediate medical assistance if officers are unaware of their location and if the need to apprehend the subject is not worth the risk to responding officers, the public, or the subject. What does this even mean? So if you have probable cause to arrest and therefore to chase someone, you then can't chase them if someone needs medical assistance during the foot pursuit? I I, I just, I can't even wrap my head around what the police in Chicago are supposed to do. Let's say a suspect committed an aggravated assault. So you begin to chase the suspect. But then wait, you have an injured party from the aggravated assault. So does that mean you can't chase the suspect? Well, first you need to ascertain does the victim need immediate medical assistance? If they do, you probably can't pursue, but if they don't, you you can pursue. Possibly. What if you're in the middle of a foot pursuit and the suspect runs into someone, knocks them over, causing them to hit their head on the sidewalk? Well, then you have to stop the foot pursuit to check on that person because they may need immediate medical assistance, regardless of the crime that you're chasing the suspect for. It sounds like it. That's what this sounds like. So basically, we just incentivized criminals to take innocent people out in the middle of foot pursuits. Complete madness. A suspect can run from an
1: officer. If the suspect then just completely plows over Mr. or Mrs. Citizen and crushes them, the officer is now forced to stop
0: his foot pursuit And get immediate medical attention for that person. Or at least determine if they need immediate medical attention. I'm not saying that that shouldn't happen at some point. But in the moment, when you're chasing that suspect, get that person into custody. Get other officers to that that victim. And render aid. Uh, But now we're just allowing the suspect to just, oh. They injured someone who, needs now, who now needs medical attention, so we're just going to let them go. We're not going to hold them accountable for that. We're going to try to figure out who they are. Another low light from this mess. Informing department members that they should not separate from their partner or from assisting units in a foot pursuit if the loss of visual contact, excessive distance, or nearby obstacles interfere with their ability to come to the aid of their partner. What? What if your partner is slow like
1: me? So foot pursuits then become
0: completely contingent on the slowest officer. If you can't keep up, if you're the slow guy, another highlight. Termination of a foot pursuit if officers engaged in the pursuit believe uh, they would not be able to control the suspect if a confrontation were to occur. How are you even to figure this out? And is this really what we want from our police to back off if they have any doubt they could control the suspect? Next highlight from the CPD news release on this. Outline responsibilities for supervisors which allow them to instruct officers to discontinue a foot pursuit at any time. Yep, perfect. Give supervisors with no backbone the ability to hide behind the policy and then also provide a way to whack those supervisors that actually believe in getting after bad guys. It's a lose-lose if you're
1: a supervisor. You either hide behind a policy,
0: or you say, no, we're catching a bad guy, and I'm going pay to the, pay the price for it. Not only will my officer get disciplined for violating the policy, probably now I will too. Next point, requiring officers to notify the officer's Office of Emergency Management and Communications of a Foot Pursuit. I mean, this is police 101 stuff for this one. It, it, and if it's not already being done, um, it should be getting addressed for officer safety reasons. When you are in a foot pursuit as an officer, officers who engage in foot pursuits know that they need to let their dispatchers know they're chasing um, a suspect. And if, and if they don't, then that just needs to be addressed as an officer safety issue. Lastly. Ensuring officers engaged in foot pursuits activate body-worn cameras to record the entire incident in accordance with the department's body-worn camera policy. Again, should already be getting done, um, and I, I don't really know why they needed to add that to uh, this policy. Bottom line is this: this all sounds very nice. Uh, when you read down through it, you're like, "Wow, that this sounds really good. It sounds really nice. Um, Going to really cut down on the risk to the officer, the public, the suspect." Um. quite frankly, it reminds me of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-2, uh, which says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, this passage is obviously talking about the end times. But this world is marching towards end times with stuff like this. When I I read something like this and see something like this, I think about this verse where people are saying peace
1: and safety. Peace and safety have become
0: one of the idols to people in this country. I mean, we've definitely seen it through COVID. People are terrified of COVID. Peace and safety and destruction will come on them suddenly. That's what I think about when I read this. Not once in these policy highlights do I see any care for victims of crime. Disgusting. If you were a patrol officer on the CPD, what would you do if a suspect ran from you? I mean, it's clear as mud, right? We just went through the highlights. What would you do? Well, you would have to go through a mental checklist and decision gymnastics just to figure out if you could pursue. And then if you choose to pursue, those checklists and mental gymnastics would continue while you tried to apprehend the suspect and stay safe. And all the while, all the while while you're doing this, while you're trying to figure it out in your head, if you're following all the rules, you know that in the back of your mind that you're likely breaking some part of this policy and will face discipline even if you do make the apprehension. The, the policy is a convoluted mess, and that will be nearly impossible to follow because of that. They might as well have just stated you can't engage in foot pursuits, because that is exactly what most officers will do. They won't even bother. And who suffers from this?
1: Current and future victims of crime. Due to this
0: ridiculous policy. The criminal wolves can't wait for this to go into effect. It goes into effect June 11th. They can't wait. This policy incentivizes running from the police. It becomes the criminal's best option.
1: It really does. You have nothing to lose from running by running from the police in Chicago as of June 11th. You have nothing to lose. Here's an idea. Instead, why not make fleeing from the police a high-level
0: felony with mandatory prison time? Well, that's not nice. And the suspect probably had a bad life and racism. That's why. That's, that's what our culture is telling us. Literally makes me sick because the people, that we, the, the people that will feel the most pain from this, absolutely asinine policy, are victims and law-abiding citizens of Chicago. Currently, Chicago has over 227 homicides in 2021. And this policy will not help get a clamp on that number or pull weapons off the street. And let me be clear this type of policy is probably coming to a police department near you. Already in this country, use of force policies and pursuit policies are being changed. They were changing in Lancaster City the last couple years before I left. Many of those changes giving criminals an upper hand and heaping decisional burdens on officers that weigh so much it's just better to not do
1: anything. And yet, there are officers who wake up every day and stay up all night trying
0: to help and trying to get after it. There is literally nothing I can say on my own to encourage those in law enforcement. I'll let Proverbs 28.4 do the talking, Proverbs 28.4 says, Those who abandon the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. We have governors and mayors and police leaders abandoning the law and praising the wicked. Make no mistake, this is what this policy does. This policy out of Chicago, PD, abandons the law and praises the wicked. But those of you who keep the law, strive against them and support those who are desperately and under great pressure struggling to enforce the law and keep the law. If you're a police officer, strive to kick up the dust in pursuit. If you are are a law enforcement supervisor, strive to stand against policies like this. Dare your mayors and those in government above you to fire you and demote you. Dare them. For in doing so, you will clearly have them show their constituents who they are, and you will gain the respect of those you lead. For those on the job, kick up the dust in pursuit of the lawbreaker, even in spite of policies like this.